Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. Who is it? It's Troy. Yeah. Two hours late. I know. It's her fault. You got the money? Two grand. Hold up. Hallelujah. You're my savior, man. My own personal Jesus Christ. You get caught using that. Yeah, I know. This never happened. You don't exist. Right. Something wrong, man? You look a little whiter than usual. My computer, it... (laughs) You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Mm, All the time. It's called mescaline. It's the only way to fly. Look, it just sounds to me like, you know, you need to unplug, man. You know, get some R&R? Hey, what do you think, sure? Should we take him with us? Definitely. No, I can't. I have, uh, work tomorrow. Come on. It'll be fun. I promise. Yeah. Sure. I'll go. Dear, dear, how queer everything is today. And yesterday, things went on just as usual. I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Let me think. Was I the same when I got up this morning? I almost think I can remember feeling a little different. But if I'm not the same, the next question is, who in the world am I? Ah, that's the great puzzle. Curiouser and curiouser. Hello and good morning. I'm Douglas Bowles, and you are Jarbing to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a dorksick conversation with the interesting artists and narfles of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can plark us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also erfting our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 24th day of June, and this is episode number 142. Yet, before we get to the question of how a raven is like a writing desk, we are pleased to announce our first underwriting sponsor to SyncBook Radio. Today's episode is brought to you by Synchronic Inc., manufacturers of the meme featuring the patented crown, earbead, and sixth sense technologies. After the success of the Aleph and the meme, Synchronic Inc. introduced the revolutionary word exchange. Yet today they are pleased to offer the next step in the bio-digital transition with the Nautilus, a seamless, screenless user interface utilizing the very power of the user's own brain. For more information, Gertz Lob, Carb Carb Dart, Tom. 
Also, as a public service, we here at SyncBook Radio are also concerned with the spread of the word flu and offer these precautionary measures to discourage the viral vectors. Number one, don't take calls from strangers. Number two, carry earplugs. And number three, when in doubt, write it out. Thank you. But today on the program, we are sharing 42 minutes with author Elena Graydon. Her first novel, The Word Exchange, was published earlier this year in April by Doubleday, and it offers a wildly ambitious, darkly intellectual and inventive thriller about the intersection of language, technology, and meaning, wherein language becomes a virus in a terrifying vision of a print-empty, web-reliant culture. It's as much about communication and philosophy as it is about secret societies, conspiracies, and dangerous technologies. Ms. Graydon will be giving a reading from this work in July on Monday the 7th at 7 p.m. at the Half King in New York. More information about this can be found on her Facebook author page at facebook.com slash author. It's an honor to have her here today on the show, and we welcome her. Hi, Elena. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you, and that is really one of the most uh, creative, exciting introductions I have yet heard. So thank you so much. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. Creative? This is just... <laughs> it was really wonderful. So thank you. It's The honor is really all mine. Um. This is wonderful. Um, we need to check to see how contagious you are. May I ask you a few <laughs> diagnostic questions? Absolutely. Okay. I'm ready. Which is better, Johnny Cash or Dolly Parton? Ooh, that is a really tough question. Um, man, I don't know if I'm going to pass this test. I think I would have to say that I have great love for both of them in my heart. Pantera or Slayer? All right, that one's a little easier. I think I'm going to go Pantera. Vertigo or rear window? Rear window. Best of youth or the wire? Uh, again, a real tough one. I think I have to go with the wire, my sort of American roots rearing their head. Settlers of Catan or Advanced Dungeons and Dragons? And this one, I have to say, I don't, I'm not as knowledgeable as Bart, so um, so I don't know that I could pick either one with any degree of authenticity. Deep fried pickles or deep fried bacon? Well, I'm a vegetarian, so that one's easy. A. Hemingway or Fitzgerald? Fitzgerald, hands down. Okay. <laughs> Can we start with a few definitions? Absolutely. Okay, so what is a neologism? Neologism. A neologism just means a new word. That's the sort of simplest definition. And, you know, language evolution is a really natural process. It's one of the things that I find most intellectually exciting and the fact that we're constantly introducing new words into our vocabulary. And, um, you know, what I sort of wanted to explore in my book, The Word Exchange, is what might happen if the process were corrupted in some way. If if people who managed to get control of our linguistic heritage and stockpile managed to 
monetize these neologisms in some way that could potentially have really negative ramifications for all of us. Okay, and then in the book, you do have a corporation, Synchronic, but that's that's also a real word. Is that right? Yeah, it sure is. That's right. Um, especially in the practice or the sort of study of linguistics, uh, generally what it means is that if you're studying something diachronically, that means you're sort of looking at the evolution of it over a long period of time. And if you're looking at something synchronically, it means that you're looking at it usually at a fixed moment in time. So, you know, say a, a given idiom or even a specific word, you would look at, you know, um, 19th century England versus sort of English as it has evolved over thousands of years. So, Okay, so one of the really fascinating things about your book was how unsettling I found it because it the shifting quality in the language that you write about also it seems like that quality is also present in the the prose itself because of the the different perspective of the different narrators yeah that's something that I've heard from a few people who've read the book and I have to confess and come clean and say that um, maybe on some subconscious level I was going for that, but it's not something that I set out to do necessarily. And I was really excited to hear from people who said that they felt like in some ways the experience of reading the book capitulated the experience of the characters in the book, that the form and content kind of came together that way. There are a bunch of unusual words in the book, um, partly because then all the main characters work together at a dictionary. So they're kind of constantly coming in contact with words that the rest, rest of us don't know very often or don't, you know, come across. And so they use them sometimes. And because I have characters writing in the first person, we come across these words that they're using. And, you know, as a result, I think that a lot of the people who read the book, especially on electronic readers of one kind or another have told me that they find themselves clicking on the words and looking up the definitions of those words as they go along. And that's actually something that happens to the characters too. Um, they realize it's the book is set just a few years in the future and people are even more dependent on their devices than we all are. And certainly I am today. And what they realize in using these devices is that they've started sort of relinquishing a lot of basic um, things and even some things that we think of as sort of pretty fundamentally human. Um, they've started relinquishing more and more of those things to their machines. And certainly their memory and their memory of words is one of the things that has started to slip. And so, you know, they just stop remembering the meanings of kind of obscure words because they don't really need to remember them anymore. Just in the same way that I don't really need to remember people's phone numbers anymore or uh, how to get from point A to point B. I just asked my iPhone. Um, and so people have started forgetting the words like paradox or cynical or, you know, even more common words over the course of years of using this device. And so as a result, they ask their device 
which is called a meme, and then later in the book, there's a the next generation meme is called the Nautilus, and you gave such a beautiful description of it already. Um, and if they come across a word that they don't know, and they sort of need to know it in the context of a conversation or something that they're reading in their email, they'll just ask, or their meme will sort of invite them to download the definition of that word from a vast online database, also called the Word Exchange, like the title of the book. And for a nominal fee, they can have that definition just sort of plunked down into a little um, pop-up on the the screen, or in the case of the Nautilus, the non-screen, the sort of visual space in front of their eyes or in inside their brains um, to get the definition of that word. And, you know, I think some readers have said that they found it, like you, really unsettling and kind of uncanny to find that they were also clicking on words that they didn't know and being kind of shuttled onto the word exchange themselves. That sounds like such a meta experience because I, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the, the, also at the same time, because I felt every once in a while, because this is, there's a conspiratorial in nature. I have this, this dark side that wants to go into that and play with that idea. I was wondering if the book itself wasn't conspiratorial and we were being reprogrammed so that you know the nonsense <laughs> not to my knowledge i promise <laughs> but, you know i almost thought it's a good we... question though yeah like did you what was there any continuity of the nonsense words that you made up and put in the character's mouth the book evolved over many years i i wrote the first draft of the first chapter almost six years before it was a physical book that I could hold in my hands. And so, of course, it changed a lot over that time. And one of the things that changed pretty markedly was the language virus that people end up catching from their devices, um, the Nautilus specifically. And, um, you know, in the books are actually what ended up being, initially it was just one language virus um, and in the book as it stands now, there really are kind of two. And they're each attached to these two different kinds of devices, the meme and the nautilus. And the nautilus is the only one that can transmit a real pathogenic virus that infects people. Um, and that's because, you know, the way that it works is that it actually, through this technology that does in fact exist um, called biojection, which is sort of a needleless injection technology, it attaches to people's skin, and it's able to create a hybrid or chimeric cell between tissue, biological tissue that exists in the device and the person's own biological tissue. And of course, um, that technology, while it's really sort of in development and on its way, that's not, you know, that's not what we're using now. So there's no real way for, um, for what happened in the book to happen in our current reality. It's just that with the advances that we're making in biologic computing and machine-human interface, um, you know, it starts to feel a little less implausible than maybe it did 10 years or even five years ago. But I swear that you will be totally safe reading this book, no matter what device you read it on, <laughs> what technology, paper or digital, um, you should be totally fine. Well, and then to go along with that recently i've been getting 
at, at the sync book we do have a contact email and every once in a while we get just these bizarrely garbled things yes. that make absolutely no sense totally and like anana the uh lead protagonist character in, in the word exchange i just assumed that there was some kind of scam behind it mm-hmm. and i think that's yeah generally the case they're just phishing scams and you know these gobbledygook um emails that we get but just as plausibly it could be very well some kind of computer virus right well and of course usually phishing scams do involve at least some oblique attempt to hack into your database or extract some information, even if it's by trying to encourage you to click on a link that's enclosed in an email. And of course, computer viruses are so much more shifty and pervasive than we, you know, maybe had lulled ourselves into thinking. And we're starting to realize that that people can have access to our information in lots of ways that we all sort of tried to pretend to ourselves that they couldn't, you know. And for me, it's been really interesting because I um, watched this shift from print to digital over the course of my life. I'm really part of the, that kind of hinge generation who were the last to really use print media in a real and earnest way because digital media didn't come along in its current incarnation until, you know, I was in high school. And I happened to study abroad in Beijing when I was 17. And for a semester, I was living with a host family. And that was right when email became really popular. And I was very glad to have a way to communicate with my friends and my family back home. And it also really got me thinking about language in, in, a, in the way for the first time that I have continued to think about it. And that inspired me to write this book as something that connects us not just across space, but also across time. I was, of course, learning a new language at the time. But I also became really sort of wary of digital communication for a couple of reasons. One was that I discovered pretty quickly that um, electronic text is kind of fragile and vulnerable. So, you know, our digital infrastructure was sometimes a little shaky and I would write a long email in the little internet cafe near my high school and, you know, really pour my heart and soul into it and hit send and it would just evaporate. It wouldn't be there anymore. I'd go back and it would be gone. And so that was one way in which I felt like, uh oh, this digital sphere maybe isn't quite as solid as the sort of corporeal physical books and, you know, letters and notebooks around us. And then the other way, too, is just that we all were really aware of the fact that um, there were certain websites we couldn't access. There were things that might disappear overnight, news stories or um, connections to U.S. news sites. And we all knew that on the flip side, everything we were writing could potentially be read and maybe even censored or deleted um, maybe that was really what was happening, speaking of conspiracy theories, when I'd write these long confessional emails and they'd vanish. Um, probably not, but, um, you know, it was certainly on my mind. And it's something that has come back to me very much just in the, um, you know, the time since the NSA revelations, that um, what we put out into the digital sphere 
it's not safe in in a couple different ways. It's not safe because it can be overwritten, it can be manipulated. Um, it's easy if things exist only online for people who maybe want to make inconvenient facts disappear or narratives be manipulated to do that. And then it's also not safe because it's not private. It's really easy for it to be read, even if we think that things are encrypted and safe. And I just, I think that um, so much overwhelming evidence has come to bear um, on that. And it's just something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about and that I think is really part of the cultural conversation right now. It's it's funny when you're speaking about these contradictions, it, it reminds me, what is the first word to dis disappear from the dictionary? It's paradox. It's, yes. And That's it's strange right. how the web is both, it, it's so ephemeral on the one hand, but at the same time, yes. there's the, the threat that exactly. what you do is forever there. Yes. I love that paradox. That's something that, you know, you've really nailed it. But in some ways, it's really indelible ink, right? I mean, sometimes a lot of the things that we wish would disappear are just sort of permanently haunting us in cyberspace. But at the same time, we can't sort of safeguard the things that we might want to safeguard. I mean, I think we've all had that experience of having something evaporate from the so-called cloud. You know, we've had files or um, photos or irreplaceable audio files or documents just vanish um, and, you know, our whole database is wiped out. So, so yeah, there is this sort of double-edged sword. And, of course, I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm anti-technology because I love the Internet and I spend a lot of time as a denizen of that space. Um, and, you know, I use as many gadgets and devices as anyone um, but I just also think that it's worth considering and contemplating the ways in which it's changed not just how we interact with text and language and how we interact with each other when so many of our communications are mediated through devices and screens, whether we're mediating them from far away or when we're with each other and constantly being interrupted by messages that are invading, um, but also... I found that I kept thinking that it was also changing my own brain and sort of the nature of my thoughts and the kinds of creativity that I was able to access, the kinds of um, the ways in which I could be reflective. And I did, it just got me thinking, you know, we're not exactly the same humans that we were a couple of decades ago or even just a few years ago. Um, we have these amazing devices that are augmenting not just our psychology, but even our physiology. And, you know, we're, we're sort of becoming bionic. And I think that's really exciting. And I think the fact that the Internet can make almost everything available to us from almost anywhere at any time is thrilling. But it also means that there it comes with some consequences. And I think we haven't entirely figured out what all of those consequences will be. So I, you know, language is very much at the center of the book, but I also wanted to use it as something of a lens for exploring this bigger question of how, um, how we're changing as people. 
one of the other interesting juxtapositions I noticed was that the the technological side is cutting edge, but the actual book itself might be structured similarly to something from the 19th century. Was that? <laughs> this that is, is a great observation. I really never thought about that. So there is this, even though it's it's a fast-paced thriller in that sense, at the same time, there's this, the, the multiple narrators, I, I think it yeah. was... Yeah, just sort of a picaresque, right? It roams from place to place. And, and the... the the actual perspective changes enough that you don't you you get really a you don't have like one clear voice saying this is what's going on you get it and that's right. one of the reasons why it feels unsettling is because for the longest time you don't know what to think about max because anana and bart's opinions are quite different right and pretty they each have their own heavy biases <laughs> And they're both trustworthy and not. <laughs> right, exactly. And I, you know, I'm very interested in the spectrum of reliability in narrators, you know, how reliable they are and how reliable we should think they are. And, you know, these characters don't go too far off the path. Um, neither of them is sort of clinically insane, um, for example. But certainly once... Um, Bart's journal entries start getting infected by the word flu and his language degrades over the course of that of the book that does affect maybe not his reliability but his um, his ability to be comprehended so yeah no I'm really interested in that um, you're right I think that there are a few ways in which the book is sort of a funny combination of elements that maybe are somewhat unexpected, not just the sort of very cutting-edge science aspect for which I was, like, very lucky to have gotten help from some really brainy scientists, um, but also just the fact that, you know, I heard it described by quite a few people as kind of a mashup of different genres. Like you said, it's sort of a thriller. It's a little bit of a mystery story. It starts the night that Anana's dad, Doug, disappears, both from the office at the dictionary, where they both work, but also the entry that's devoted to him, the sort of encyclopedia-like entry that's devoted to him in the digital edition of their dictionary vanishes from the pages of that dictionary. So there's that sort of mystery element. And then there's, you know, a love story, and there's some uh, philosophical um, meditations. So... It, you know, it doesn't sort of hew very cleanly to any, I think, easily categorizable thing. Um, but I think that your observation is, that's the first time I've heard that, and I just think that's so insightful and really interesting. So thanks for mentioning it. You, you bet. And then also, you know, as you're a first-time novelist, was did you stumble upon the infrastructure, the structure of this thing? And that, I'm I'm curious about your process. That's a, yeah, that's a great question. Because it has a pretty inventive structure that just seems to really uh, create something. To, you know, it just it's it's wonderful. Could you describe the structure a little bit? And then also, you know, did the idea come first, or did you have this idea 
about doing a story about the dictionary and then... Yeah, no, that is a wonderful question. I was just reading, um, I'm totally interested in the opinions of the um, literary critic James Wood, who writes for the New Yorker magazine, and I was just reading a review that he wrote of someone's book from, I think, last week's um, issue, and he was describing a novel as this really strange beast because it's totally artificial, but the author has to try to present it as something that's completely seamless and organic. That's kind of one of the major tasks. And, you know, I don't know if I succeeded in all ways, but, you know, I think that I was a little intimidated to try to start writing my first novel. I was really intimidated. And so for me, I think part of what I did to try to make the process feel somewhat more manageable was that I did impose a lot of structure early on and I did a ton of plotting and I had all these ideas for exactly what would need to happen in each chapter. And of course I threw out so much of that after the first and the second draft, but I always knew that I wanted the book to be divided into 26 chapters, one for each letter of the alphabet and that each chapter would begin with a fictional definition of something starting with A and going through to Z. And that sort of made everything feel like, okay, I think I could actually enter into this process. I also knew that I really wanted there to be, initially I thought there would be three uh, voices, and there sort of are. There's sort of a vestigial third narrative voice, but primarily it's these two narrators And I think the reason that ended up happening is because it really is this kind of word exchange between Anana on the one hand and her colleague Bart on the other. And both of those voices are really necessary. They're interdependent because Anana is telling the story from just a couple months in the future retrospectively, going back through time and saying, okay, this is what's happened during this crisis and epidemic, pandemic. And Bart is telling the story moving forward through time, sort of synchronically in a way, right? His journal entries capture specific moments as they're unfolding. And that becomes a little tricky because um, language, he's infected by this language virus, so language is in essence making him sicker. Um, But she, in fact is using language to help her get well over the course of the book. Um, And writing this account is one of the things that's a therapy for her, a linguistic therapy. Um, So I just really felt like these two voices were sort of in kind of an antiphonal chorus with each other and um, really needed to sort of come together in this way for the story to have the impact that I was hoping that it would or sort of follow the kind of course that I I hoped and thought that it would. I have a friend who also wrote a book using two narrative voices and she said, I imagined it as this sort of, you know, helix. And she was like, it kind of didn't turn out that way. You know, it's a little lumpy and bumpy, but um, that's what I was hoping for. And I think I was hoping for something sort of similar. Um, and I'm sorry, could you remind me of the second part of your question? Oh, it was just whether or not the idea itself came first or the, oh, the idea yeah, for structure right. came first. You know, what I 
Where I started, the kernel of the idea came to me 11 years ago, and it was sort of dramatic. I had just experienced a house fire during my last semester of college, and um, no one was hurt, thank God, but I left all my books and my laptop, and that, of course, got me thinking about the ephemerality of text and language, again, it's one of my recurring preoccupations. Um, and as a graduation gift, my parents had given me a copy of the Oxford American Dictionary because all of my dictionaries were burnt to a crisp. And I was flipping through it. I took it with me to um, a visual art residency in the mountains of North Carolina a couple months after my graduation. And I noticed that there were these kind of encyclopedia-ish entries for famous people in the book. And the idea that I had was just what if one of those entries were to disappear from the pages? What what would the story behind that be? And, you know, I am a huge um, fangirl of Jorge Luis Borges, and I love the fantastical worlds that he creates, and he's obsessed with um, dictionaries and libraries and labyrinths and alternate histories. So I think initially the idea that I had was for something fantastical. And the idea of text just vanishing from a page really did seem sort of fantastical then. Um, But I sort of kept the idea alive, warming it on the back burner of my mind for years. But I didn't start writing it until, as I said, six years ago. And by the time I sat down to start writing it, um, the idea of text disappearing from a page really didn't seem so fantastical anymore, partly because the idea of what a page constitutes had really changed in that time. iPhones had just been released and Kindles had just come onto the market. And even though publishers had been talking about electronic readers for years, they were finally now starting to seem like a reality. And in fact, I learned later about um, an infamous case where Amazon accidentally was selling people copies of a book that they didn't have the digital copyright to. It was 1984, uh, of all things, I believe. And, um, you know, before actually notifying people of what they were doing, they felt that the they had an imperative just to remove those downloads. So they deleted them from everyone's Kindles instantaneously. And I think it really caught a lot of people off guard because it's so easy to forget that these things that we think of as belonging to us in the digital sphere are actually not ours. They're sort of an extended loan and they can just kind of vanish at any moment that the company decides that they want them to go away or um, that maybe some nefarious uh, outside force decides to get rid of them. So by the time that I started to write the book, um, I knew that I wanted this character, there could be these sort of twin disappearances of this chief editor character who in the book is named Doug, and then he would disappear both from the dictionary building and also from the book itself. But I also knew that his disappearance would sort of have in some ways started years earlier as his work has become more and more obsolescent over the years. And he, as a lexicographer, dictionary maker, has become sort of less relevant um, over time. 
and I knew that I wanted there to be some serious ramifications of the over-dependence on the technologies that have sort of made him and the work that he does um, no longer very relevant. And I also knew that I wanted this language virus to, in some ways, really mimic a computer virus. And that seemed relevant partly because both the mode of transmission and the creation, the genesis of the virus, were made possible by this transition from print to digital. And in the realm of technology and the fantastical, did you realize the implications of making your antiviral pill blue? <laughs> no, I don't know if I I don't know if I still realize. I don't know if I know what the implications are. I may need you to enlighten me. Well, one so a number the 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 book is so mischievous, but it does call together a whole body of kind of dystopian works. And and one of the really prominent things early on was the Matrix, and that's one of it's and it's interesting. Right, right, right. Of course, right, right, right. And yes. Neo's offered this choice. Right, but right. It, of course, it's playing with Alice in Wonderland. In Wonderland, yes. And yes, um, yeah. I mean, I think that um, you know, I. I honestly have a really bad memory, so I know that things get lodged in there sort of subconsciously, and these things that have had a huge influence on me um, and archetypal stories, they're they're in there somewhere, and I'm sure that that influenced my choice, but I don't know that I was really conscious of it. Um, but I love that, yeah, you just sort of reminded me of that um, just now. I mean, one of the things that I've been really interested to discover over the course of doing some um, interviews and talking with people about the book over the last couple months has been, I talked, I did an interview with someone who told me that after the King James Bible and the collected works of Shakespeare, Alice in Wonderland is the most quoted English language source. And, um, Alice in Wonderland features in the book in a few ways um, in my book, The Word Exchange. And, you know, I think that I have always been really fascinated by that story, not just because I have kind of a personal connection to it, like the character in Anna. I played Alice in a school play in sixth grade alongside my best friend. And so um, I've just been steeped in those stories for my whole life. But also because there are very few stories that have the staying power of Alice in Wonderland and that have this sort of cultural significance and are reinvented and revisited and readapted for each new generation and have these creepy, dark implications and also these fantastical, fun, silly, ridiculous implications. And of course, in the Alice stories, words and language start losing their meanings, literally. Um, and I was interested in tapping into it for that reason, among others. Um, but I'm really excited about the character of Alice for probably the same reasons that a lot of other people are, which is that, you know, she is a paradoxical figure. She seems like a prototypical victim. She's sort of at the mercy of a hostile environment where she 
no, has no allies, doesn't know who to trust. Nothing seems to be what it should be. And she's constantly being tossed from one extreme to the next and one crazy situation to another. And she doesn't seem on the surface to have wherewithal to deal with all of it. But that's the thing that's so remarkable about her is that she is in this kind of dialectical relationship with her environment and she's constantly learning the rules to each new circle in this world and figuring out how to make her way through. And I find that really inspirational that it's her sort of curiosity and ingenuity and maybe her ingenue quality, her sort of seeming naivety or like true naivety that's helped her move through this world. And I was sort of trying to capture something similar um, with the character of Anana, who likewise is kind of in this world that doesn't, it's not quite the world she thought that she knew and words and language don't mean what she thinks that they mean. And she doesn't know who she can trust as she's looking for her dad and trying to figure out what happened to language. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that we all are sort of working from the same store um, of stories. And, you know, there was a time when a lot of people in the culture knew all of the Bible stories, for example. And some of us have those um, still in us, you know, some in some ways. Um, but there are other cultural stories that have sort of stepped in and maybe taken the place of those archetypal narratives and that constantly get referenced and cross-referenced in all sorts of stories. Um, certainly, I wanted to introduce that early on to say, this is a world that we think we know, but it's not quite our world. And and I wanted to use that touchstone from the very beginning to clue the reader in to what kind of story they'd be reading. Do you think this this work would translate to film? And do you have anyone interested in? I don't know. I mean, from your from your lips um, to the universe's ears, I guess. Um, I have heard that from quite a few people, um, which initially surprised me. Um, I would love that to happen. I mean, I think that would be really exciting. Um, so far, nothing is in the works. So. Who would play... I, for some reason, Douglas was the character that... I want to speculate about who would play Douglas. Would it be... Oh, tell me. I'm curious <laughs> would to it hear be your ideas. Tom Hanks, or would it be Harrison Ford? You know, or is I he... think it would have to be someone maybe a little darker than Tom Hanks slightly more prone to conspiracy theories, maybe. Harrison Ford, I think, would be great. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> maybe they're getting too old, too. Yeah, maybe. Although he's he's kind of advanced in age himself. He's pushing 70, so. Well, and then, so we've been talking about fantasy. What about, what about reality? What about Amazon and Hachette? And what do you mean? Yeah, no, it's been really interesting to watch that unfold. Um, And, you know, I think that there have been a lot of ways in which some of the things that I wrote about in the book have turned from science fiction into reality. Um, And I was also really interested to see that Amazon had released uh, a smartphone (laughs) not very long ago. I thought, hmm, that sounds a little synchronic-like. I mean, look, I think I've been 
one of the things I was so interested in over the course of this, watching this transition from digital to print is watching the consolidation of a lot of different kinds of holdings, music, movies, books, um, maybe even something like court documents, and that the mode, the ways in which we consume them have also changed. And it seems like it's created the possibility for, um, you know, once you have a situation where one company has a device that lots of people use and they can control, you know, the, the means of production, the modes of delivery, um, a lot is made possible that starts to seem less like conspiracy theory and more like what's really happening right now. Um, I know I was just being a little bit cryptic right right then. But yeah, I mean, I think that um, even the fact that now there are only five big publishers um, has a lot of people concerned, a lot of people who work in the publishing industry um, that we're moving more towards these giant monopolies, um, you know. And I think uh, it's always a little worrisome when one corporation controls so much of a market that affects so many people. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of books that deal with the power of books. Um, Fahrenheit 451 is sort of the paradigmatic example. And the idea that the people who control what we know, um, you know, control what we think and what we think about them and how we think. And, you know, when when there's someone who can sort of control access to things and render certain books, for example, almost totally invisible, that is it. That's huge power, you know. And certainly with this Amazon-Hachette dispute, Amazon has been able to make a lot of books sort of virtually disappear. And Stephen Colbert has a great platform to sort of, you know, get a megaphone. You know, he's done this lovely thing where he's helped uh, promote the book of the debut author who has a book coming out later this summer. And he's, of course, promoted his own books in true Stephen Colbert fashion. But there are so many other books that have just been kind of, they've just disappeared in a way. Um, and, you know, I hope that the dispute is resolved soon and in a way that can kind of set a precedent moving forward that may give publishers a little bit more leverage. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating to watch the ways in which, you know, what I described is sort of, it's a, it seems to me that I was describing a company that is a little bit cartoon-like in its nefariousness, you know, but the reality is that most corporations are sort of understandably interested in their bottom line. I mean, however they can kind of um, accrue the most profit for their shareholders. That's, that's what they're charged with doing. That's what they have to do. And, you know, they have to do it ethically and legally. Um, but if they can figure out a way to sort of um, get people to buy more of something that they didn't know that they needed or wanted, for example, downloads of the definitions of words, um, and then, you know, they're doing their jobs. And, you know, famously, I think Steve Jobs said that 
he sort of created a product that um, satisfied desires for customers that they didn't even know that they yet had. And in the case of the book, people using the meme, it's really their dependence on the meme that erodes their memory and their linguistic capacity. And the people who, you know, who produce the meme and the Nautilus, they also run the word exchange. And they've noticed, oh, hey, the device has this effect. Why don't we exploit that effect and make a little money doing it? So, you know, I don't think there's anything so novel about the concept for my novel. (laughs) Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. You've been listening to Elena Graydon on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Ms. Graydon can be found on her Facebook author page. More information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. Today's episode was brought to you by listeners like you and Synchronic Inc. Look for their exciting collaboration with Hermes coming soon. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and remember, when in doubt, write it out.
is what you saw! <laughs>